Podcast. My name is Andy Spateri, joined as always by the man himself, Dakota Lasky. Dak, how you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, my man. Doing, uh, doing pretty good. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. The countdown is on. The countdown yes. is on. It it's, is. Uh, it's more than on, man. I mean, yeah. we're we're within more than within a month. So yeah, I, we're on. I, so, we've seen so much, and there's so much more to see. I'm excited. I had I had a revelation actually uh, yesterday because I went to go and book the eighth of October off of work just so I could play Metroid, and so um, I realized. That And this is a good news and a bad news scenario, but I realized that the weekend of the 8th is actually Canadian Thanksgiving this year. So that takes place on the 10th. So the 11th, which is the Monday, will be a stat holiday. So I'm going to have a four-day weekend. So that's going to be like so hype to play. Wow, look at you. But the bad news is that, dude, I'm going to have to go to like um, my wife's family's thanksgiving i'm gonna have to go to my family's thanksgiving i'm gonna have to go to my my other side of the family's thanksgiving and like her so there's potentially like four thanksgiving dinners in this one weekend and like bro all i want to do is just play metroid dread like i'm gonna say that i got food poisoning or something and just get some turkey to go and stay home and play metroid dread so it's kind of it's kind of the best of times kind of the worst of times although really not the worst of times at all because i mean i guess i could just like bring my switch but you know what i mean yeah, I mean, I, you know, I wish I had so many Thanksgivings to go between, but you'll you'll find some Metroid Dread time in there, I'm sure. Uh, actually, I was so I was talking to one of Sam's younger cousins. He's like he's like 13 years old. He's an he's an awesome kid. I talked to him about like Breath of the Wild and stuff like that. And I'm I'm trying to convince this kid to buy Metroid Dread. He's like, I never heard of Metroid before. And I was like, Bro, I'll bring my Switch for Thanksgiving. You play for an hour, I guarantee you're buying this game. So, doing my part to create the uh, the next generation of metroid fans <laughs> yeah that, that uh it'll be good it'll be fun um and this episode will be fun this this might be our first episode of the podcast that covers another podcast but i think that it uh i think that we learned a lot of interesting stuff from this podcast episode that we are going to cover so i am uh i'm very much looking forward to that but i feel like before we get there deck we should briefly discuss um, the Metroid Dread report number seven and the new kind of overview trailer for Metroid Dread. Nothing really groundbreaking or new was shown in either the Dread report or the overview necessarily, but still kind of cool to see. And in the um, in the Dread report in particular, there was like a lot of like really great uh, high quality images of some of the uh, some of the Chozo memories, for example, from Samus Returns. Some of the cutscenes showing the old bird Chozo from Metroid Zero Mission. And um, some of the redacted character that we discussed in length last week. There are some high quality renders, high quality images. So um, not not anything necessarily new or groundbreaking, but uh, still kind of some cool stuff in there. Yeah, I guess uh, we're not going to go too hard into spoiler territory. So I'll just say that, I mean, I really don't think they're spoilers, just but... What what we're seeing here is pretty cool because I'm really glad that we're we're getting the chance to really like interact with the Chozo actively in the story, which is something that Metroid's really needed for a while, and it's kind of like the natural progression of the story so far. So I'm excited for that and what that all has to offer. And yeah, you get to see some cool stuff from the previous games, 
good to see the you know Chozo memories reference. So that's not surprised because those also came from Mercury Steam. So yeah, I'm I'm glad that they're you know giving people a lot of information here. I you know I think even for you know experienced Metroid fans, it's nice to have a little bit of a refresher. But this stuff is you know the most. The, some of this stuff is any Metroid fan would know. I guess you really wouldn't know some of this stuff unless you haven't played Metroid ever, or maybe even not even like Smash Bros. Like this stuff you might have even learned just by reading the trophies in Melee or something. But we do get to see some new stuff from the Chozo, Chozo which is pretty cool. You know, that's a good point, actually. I bet you that probably a lot of people more than kind of have a passing knowledge of, of a bunch of different series just by reading trophies from... Super Smash Bros. Now that you say it, I feel like I have kind of like a, I don't know, like a base idea of some games that I had like never played before. Like Mother 3, I, I kind of had like a base idea of that game before I actually played it. And that was like specifically and directly from Smash Bros. So yeah, actually, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, that's where I learned a lot about a ton of games was from that. That's And I, I think that's, it's, it's a shame that we don't have trophies anymore in Smash because I understand why they do it, but... Having that kind of like museum or like history, it's just like to go back through is is really yeah. cool. And it's a good way for people to kind of get interested in new things. You know what? I, this is a sidebar here that doesn't really have anything to do with it. But I will say that I, I did like spirits in Ultimate more than I thought I would. Like when they had the initial trailer that showed off the spirits, I was just kind of like, Ugh, what is this? Like this looks kind of lame and kind of cheesy. But I actually, I kind of did like how you could like, train them and evolve them and and stuff like that um so actually spirits is uh was kind of a welcome surprise for me from ultimates but i mean yeah of course i miss the i miss like the smashified renders of the characters and stuff those are so cool i mean i'll be honest with you man i don't i don't think i've played more than like 15 minutes of spirit mode maybe i i think when i found out how long it took to like unlock the the new like theme you get for the menu, main menu and that's through like beating the whole thing i was like screw this i miss a subspace emissary man that was the best single player mode for a smash game i wanted that again yeah subspace was pretty cool um but but i did like the spirit board and it it certainly was like that could have been released as as a game unto itself for sure and i and i think that you know anyone would have been happy with the amount of content that they got but that is neither here nor there there's also the uh, the overview trailer, and um, again, nothing really, you know, nothing really uh, groundbreaking in this trailer. But it was kind of cool to see. I, th- I think you tweeted this actually, where it was almost like it kind of felt like almost like a little direct or something, but like a Metroid direct. And this is probably the closest that we'll ever get to a Metroid direct, just showing off all of Samus's different moves, abilities. It's just like it's so striking to me how, like, how much Nintendo realizes that like hey, this is going to be a lot of people's first Metroid game. Let's get them up to speed on what to expect and and kind of condition them to what kind of gameplay they're going to be in store for. So I, I feel like, you know, we've talked about it before, but it really does feel like they're doing a really smart job in um, promoting this. Yeah, I, I, I still don't think they're really going too far at all. There's going to be a lot of people that are new and just even people who might not have played Metroid in a while too who might need a refresher, and I think it's good that Nintendo is kind of getting a refresher on Metroid as well by doing this. It's nice to see <laughs> that Samus is kind of, you know, back in their focal point, and hopefully that doesn't change anytime soon. Uh, I was playing a game of Mario Pictocross right before we wow. started recording, and you know when you boot up your Switch, 
You, I love that game, by the way. I, I think that game has overtaken Super Metroid for most hours put into my SNES online. I've but never played when that game. I fired game up my... Ever. Oh, it's a, well, <laughs> it's good, but it's it's good in the way that, like, Sudoku is good, like, right before bed. You know what I mean? Um, but I, I've never... When I fired that. up my Switch, I saw not one, but two, two Metroid icons on, like, the home screen there. Yeah, I tweeted that out earlier today. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that, yeah. It was, uh, I, I it was, was like, the, this uh, is awesome. Fe- featured news area. I was playing some Smash, and I turned my Switch on, and it's so it was like Wario, or WarioWare, and then uh, it showed Samus, like, get to know the bounty hunter Samus, and then it showed another Metroid Dread post there, you know, more information on the game, and it showed, like, Samus in her Dread suit, it showed Samus in her various suit, and that was really cool. I think that's the first time I've ever seen so much Metroid on the screen for my switch <laughs> so that's pretty awesome yeah it was it was pretty cool and i'm hopefully hopefully that we can get more like i don't even know what they call them like icons or whatever for your switch profile there's like a gajillion animal crossing and metroid ones and zelda ones and i think there's samus and zero suit samus for metroid so that'd be that'd be nice to see more of those show up but um yeah that's uh it's great to see but we had the the and not just us of course but tons of people had the opportunity to listen to a podcast uh, a really well done podcast really great interview by a guy named kiwi talks um i i did some slight research on him and he's done some big interviews before with some some other members of uh different developmental teams uh really really knowledgeable uh questionnaire or like guy asking the questions i thought that his interview was was very well done so anybody that uh, is interested in, in checking out some of these interviews from Kiwi Talks, he's over on YouTube, he's over on Spotify, all that good stuff. Go and check him out, give him a follow. But Kiwi Talks interviewed Mike Wicken, who was the lead designer of um, Metroid Prime 1, 2, 3, and Trilogy. He was at Retro Studios for quite a long time, and he interviewed him primarily about his experiences uh, working with Nintendo and working on Metroid and a little bit of the the game development process of that and it was a really really fascinating listen i finally got around to listening to it yesterday um our buddy doom recommended that we check it out and i i agree it was it was very interesting to hear kind of some of his um analysis and, and thoughts i guess and, and reflection so i'm gonna pull a do you ever go to what culture deck I, I I don't go to it, but I know what it is. Uh, being an avid wrestling right. fan myself. So what culture will always have those those articles, and it's like it's like eight things we learned from listening to to Becky Lynch on Steve Austin's podcast. So I'm just gonna blatantly rip that idea off, and I have 14 things that Andy learned from listening to Mike Wicken on the Kiwi Talks podcast, and of course, Dak. You can throw in anything that you uh, want to, you know, want to talk about in there, and we can get going. But um, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about a couple of the different points that he brought up about Metroid Prime and its development, and I'm going to kind of go in chronological order from okay. the beginning of the interview till the end. And uh, maybe, maybe we knew this already, maybe we didn't, but it it did stick out to me to hear him just kind of reemphasize this. But number one, 35 people worked on Metroid Prime. That is a crazy small team for the amount of work that went into that game. And uh, 
you know, he talks about the crunch that went in later. And I mean, man, when there is, when there's only 35 people, you can just imagine we covered the history of retro studios before in a, just a like crazy bonkers episode and, and a real life story. And that kind of bled over into the development of this, but man, 35 people developing what, like a, this triple a game, uh, that still holds up all these years later. It seems almost unfathomable when you think of like, let's say let's say that the team working on Metroid Prime 4 I'm sure is just a little bit more than 35 people. I would hope so. I'm sure there's like 35 people in just like a single portion of a department alone. So Yeah. I you know, I it it is kind of crazy how many games get done in the conditions that they were in and it's a lightning in the bottle for many games even just on the GameCube like Melee is another lightning in the bottle. Um Metroid Prime I it, when he goes into it, and he talks about how they would build in kind of like a modular nature and create like the rooms first, like all the geometry and the gameplay before like sending it off to like artwork and whatnot. Like he talked about how important it was for like the production pipeline and workflow to be really streamlined and modular because they had such few people. And he also goes into, I believe, uh, the engine that they used, which was called Rude, the re retro universal design engine. So a lot of that stuff that they were able to do in the game was possible with this engine, which was more like design focused rather than programming focused. So they didn't need mm -hmm. as many programmers to get a lot of that work done. They could work mostly as design or have mostly designers doing it or whoever was working on it at the time. And it all seemed like how they like set themselves up, like despite all the craziness of the actual development, from his perspective, it seems like they were able to set up like a workflow and process that made it manageable with such a smaller team. Yeah, just a a crazy story, and that was uh, that was point number two of mine was the engine that they built, the retro universal design engine, and he, some of his some of his talk was was a little bit over my head. Obviously, I'm no game developer or coder or anything like that. But from the way he described it, I kind of made an analogy that it, it felt like for a game developer, what they built was kind of akin to maybe using WordPress for like an online website. And I, I bring that up because I use WordPress a lot for Zelda Dungeon. Um, so using WordPress is like very intuitive. You don't need to know how to code. You don't need to know how to like do HTML. You can download plugins that kind of do that for you. And the way that he described the root engine and, and the modular kind of design of it, it kind of gave me the same kind of vibes that WordPress has in terms of like you not having to code. This one gave me the same kind of vibes with like they built this engine and they did so so that they didn't have to have all of these software engineers kind of write these complex scripts or complex, uh, you know, whatevers to get their, you know, to get their game running properly. So right. very cool to kind of hear him get into those like technical nitty gritty details. Yeah, it's it's kind of like uh, I don't know if you ever tried like RPG Maker or something, which is like those kind of like game makers you can get on Steam. Where yeah, it's a similar kind of thing. You don't know how you don't necessarily need to know how to program or script, but it's like a whole software that helps you put an actual game together. Like that's the same kind of vibe that I got from this. Or you know, and and think about it too. It's pretty crazy if that they had something like that back in you know the early two thousands where technology was nowhere near it was today. I mean, nowadays I can download something like RPG Maker. I could, I could download Unreal. I have Unreal Engine 4 downloaded on my computer for free. Like, that's a crazy tool, a crazy engine to have, like, just available commercially for anyone to download. 
And back then, they kind of had something that seemed to have equivalent or similar or, you know, somewhat similar power that allowed them to create the game in a way they did. But it, it, it was fascinating listening to them, you know, put that together because sometimes, you know, we've heard a lot of horror stories in, in putting, uh, creating an engine for the de- development of a game, right? Like a new engine for a new game. And in this case, it seemed to have really worked out. Yeah, and and I think he said that like this engine would still be viable and and quite useful even today, which is you know crazy. He said a couple things actually during the kind of like technical little bit that uh, I I just picked up that I thought were interesting. Like they mapped out on grid paper the entire map of Metroid Prime. They basically spent like like ninety, maybe not ninety, maybe like eighty percent of the developmental time of like Metroid Prime, like just building the actual like hallways and stuff and then all the art was added later i just i I thought that that was just like interesting to see how it goes and like just it 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 was kind of the epitome of like if you have eight hours to chop down a tree spend six hours sharpening your axe you know like and it seemed like at the last bit the big flurry and the big rush was added in so that that was just really interesting to me to hear him kind of say in detail like that process yeah they he said it was like they would put together those rooms and then they sent over to artwork and then it would get sent right back to them in kind of like a last tweak kind of phase, right? So they would have those rooms created and then artwork would, you know, have their own kind of inspiration and, and take with it what they would, which he said was, you know, a pretty big part of it. Uh, you know, part of the process was letting people kind of have their own take on things. And instead of having, you know, the gameplay designers like having their hands kind of all over that, they just sent it over to, to artwork and after they had completely taken you know the, the the geometry completely taken shape and yeah a lot of that stuff was kind of backloaded i think he said it was like the last six months of development it was like yeah like you said 70 or 80 percent of that content was put in and they kind of just spent a majority of the time creating that framework and structure so they could you know pour and dump all that stuff in in the last kind of uh you know home stretch of development um, so thing number three that we learned that I thought was just, it was kind of funny. This is just like a little anecdote, but uh, when they were working on Donkey Kong Returns or Donkey Kong Country Returns, one thing that stuck out to me is when he said that Miyamoto-san, like he wanted to make sure that Donkey Kong was fun or like this just playful a little bit. And uh, I, I don't know, that just, it made me smile because it's kind of, it's kind of in line with the with the image that we have, or maybe only that I have of, of Miyamoto of sound is just like this like creative, playful kind of genius or whatever. So just making making sure that he put his little touches on Donkey Kong just uh, kind of brought a smile to my face. I think Mike used the word whimsy, and that was uh, the perfect word to use. Was it Miyamoto or Tanabe that that did that? Um, that was Miyamoto. Was Tanabe Mi- was very he was very nuts and bolts. Gotcha. Yeah, that that said, was cool. Yeah. I like I like that because that was definitely like a good point to make because you got to have a little bit of balance, right? You got to have a little bit of relief and and lightening the mood when things are dramatic and kind of crazy and intense a lot of the time. So you got to have a little bit of that balance and even showing that in gameplay, I think is really cool too. He even talks about that in like the development cycle or like the game, the gameplay ramping he talked about where, Mm -hmm. you know, Metroid prime is kind of built on them building toward, you know, you get a couple power ups and whatnot and you build towards this big boss battle and then you get a new big thing, you get a new, you know, access to a new area, whatever, and then it kind of slows back down and 
you get to enjoy that stuff and it kind of ramps back down before ramping up again and yeah well let, that let's was talk cool about that actually because i i jotted that down as one of the things that we learned from him too because i had like usually you hear that term and you like i i would have called it the the difficulty curve but the way that he described it i thought was just like very cool and it made sense because he was he was kind of doing it visually as well but he was describing like a ramp where the game gradually increases uh, difficulty as you gradually increase your skills and, and your equipment and power-ups and stuff like that. But uh, he referred to it as like a staircase, and I had never heard that before. But the way that he kind of laid out that description made a lot of sense. Where, like, you fight a boss, and that's the big step. But once you get there, it it plateaus or even dips back down a little bit. So that now you're, you're almost overpowered, and you can kind of power yourself back up to get to... The next boss, which is like the next step. I just thought that that was like a really cool terminology. I'd never heard it before. And it was, it made me rethink the way that I think about like a difficulty curve. Because when I, when I think of that, I think of like, I think of like a game like Breath of the Wild, which is like super difficult at the beginning. But as you get more hearts and as you get better swords and armor and stuff like that, it really becomes like much easier. And well, Metroid Prime kind of scales a lot more up like that in you know, true to his word, you, there are times where, like, after you get the super missile, it's like, all right, well, now I can go in and explore and get all these extra energy tanks and stuff like that. So, I, I yeah, I thought that that was just, like, a really cool way to explain that, especially for a game like Metroid, which is, like, really designed around picking up expansions to your missiles, energy tanks, abilities, etc., etc. Yeah, and I think it doesn't even necessarily have to be tied to difficulty either. It can just be, like, what's available to you as as a character, and in terms of your gameplay, so like that could be that could make the game harder, like or, or easier, like you said. You you know, Breath of the Wild, you get access to more stuff as you play more. It becomes necessarily easier. You know, Metroid could be harder. I think it it, it can go either way, but you know that ramping of what's accessible to you in Metroid Prime, I think they you know they emphasize on giving you some time to play around with your new tools, right? Now just kind of throwing you back in to the fight. Like you have a big fight with. You know, Thardis, for example, and you don't just like immediately get attacked. You got you're forced to, you know, fight again. Like, all right, you you kind of go back and find your bearings. You roll around the arena a little bit, and you know, you figure your way out. Um, it's, with a lot of boss battles, even just picking up, you know, a power up, you kind of go all the way to the end of a long kind of series of corridors or whatever it is or rooms, and you get that boss battle and you complete it, or you get that power up and you get it. And then you usually have to make your way back to kind of like the hub area, to another area, back to your ship or something like that. And it kind of cools back down and you kind of figure out where you got to go next instead of it, you know, being like a Call of Duty game. Like you got to the next mission. Oh, the story's getting crazier. Next mission, you got to go. Oh, story's getting crazier. Next mission, you got to go. So, yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. I, I just thought it was like a very cool explanation. Um, but let's move on. Let's. Uh, so the next thing that we learned from Mr. Wiccan is... The notoriously difficult um, Guardians in Metroid Prime 2 Echoes were supposed to be easier. And he's referring to the Boost Ball Guardian and the Spider Guardian in particular. And I would actually... And now, I'm going to preface this and say that I didn't think that the, the, the bosses were too hard. But I haven't played the GameCube version of Metroid Prime 2 Echoes in, like, years and years and years. And Mike actually said... That like they went and fixed that in Metroid oh, Prime yeah. Trilogy, so I guess that makes sense why it doesn't seem that hard. But I remember um, initially playing the the Boost Guardian in particular, and that's when you're in uh, I, th- I think it's um, Dark Aegon, 
and there's no light source or whatever and he's constantly bashing you and the save point is like forever back and you don't really i think you might have the dark suit but you certainly don't have the light suit and you basically have to kill the the enemies that's that are spawning off him to get health i remember that fight being pretty ridiculous and mike actually said like this fight is too hard and nintendo really pushed for them to make it harder and they did that and then everyone was just like no this is way too hard so it was it was kind of funny to hear him i guess gripe about that a little bit I thought the most interesting part of that was that the tweak to, like, put it to where it was difficulty-wise on release was made, like, three days before the games went gold, or the game went gold. So they were tweaking it and tweaking it, and then the level that we got of difficulty on the actual, you know, the initial release of Prime 2, that was only decided, like, 72 hours, essentially, beforehand, even though it was such a substantial and, like, important part of the game consisting you know considering like the the effect it had obviously everyone remember there was remembers those bosses of being hard like very hard like ostensibly hard like exceptionally hard and of course they had to go back and change it so it's just crazy like how when you get down to those final hours like what decisions can be made in development that have such a huge impact and you kind of think okay it's like the few days before gold like everything's kind of in place but as we've seen time and time again, like things are constantly shifting cool. and you never know what and might change. One thing like the, the that I thought was and this had to be redone for, or at least re, I don't know, assigned or whatever for Metroid prime one and two. Um, lots of work had to go into uh, lots of work had to go into these games and four people did that. So, I thought that this was interesting in and of itself because we thought 35 people for Metroid Prime was crazy small, but like four people is is incredibly small for you know this uh, this trilogy game. But man, I hear that so that Metroid Prime trilogy is coming to Switch and that they're gonna find a way to get this and get over all the hurdles that everyone says is there. I just I I believe more so than ever after hearing that that like it's inevitable, it's coming. And that if four people can can port Metroid Prime Trilogy to the Switch, then, like, my God. Like, e- even if you had a team of, like, 20 people, like, and, and each of them each of them was making, like, $200,000, like, you're, you're going to make that money back so quickly by the sales of Metroid Prime Trilogy. I just, it, it's such, like, a no-brainer to me to, to go ahead and do this. So... That was my big takeaway from hearing him say that. Maybe I'm just like completely out to lunch. Obviously, I know nothing about game development, but man, it's just hard to think that they're not going to do that. I mean, I, I think it's pretty certain that they're going to do it. It's just kind of a matter of time. They're probably just waiting for Dread to come out and things to be closer to Prime 4. But then again, we haven't gotten you know the 2D Metroids on the Switch either, and Dread's coming out, so who knows. I think we all know, though, that like it's obviously possible on the Switch... I mean, it's possible on PC, and it was possible on, you know, the Wii over a decade ago with four people. Like, there's no way. And, and not only that, but they he mentions that it wasn't even just four people working on the trilogy, but a majority of the work they did was, like, editing the lore of the game and the scans in the trilogy in the three games. So it wasn't even... Uh, well, that, that was my yeah, next point. Yeah, so it wasn't... I'm, I'm sorry, I keep going ahead every time, but that was kind of... Oh, no, no, no. I mean, that's okay. Take it Yeah, away. you know, that was something I thought was funny because 
you know, you need four people to put together the game portion of the trilogy, and that was, like, the least part of the work they did. Like, obviously, it's it's possible in 2021 or whatever year it is now, especially because they won't even have to make all those changes this time around. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm assuming from, like, his perspective, like, it was probably just, you know, another sticky situation working on the Metroid Prime games, but... I'm not surprised like the like the team was so small considering it was just ports, but still like it's totally possible, and I think we all know it's possible. Just a matter of time. Yeah, that just like man, that just reaffirmed my my belief that this is like definitely coming. And I I dare say I can't remember which ex developer said that it was impossible. It might have been Mike. It might have been someone else. I I can't remember who off the top of my head, but. Man, I, I I just think it's, like, definitely, definitely going to happen. Um, yeah, as you pointed out, I was kind of surprised by this. And I'd seen this story making the rounds, like, the immediate days or two after this podcast that came out. But Nintendo literally analyzed, like, every single word of the, of the scan. Like, every scan, every lore, every creature, every computer, just to make sure that everything kind of lined up with the the continuity of the Metroid series, which I don't Nerds. know. Like, you know <laughs> Touch grass. Like on one hand, it's like, it's Nintendo, right? Like the, obviously they're, they're perfectionists, but then on the other hand, it's like, and these guys don't care about Metroid. Like they, they're really, hey, they're spending that they much did. time doing this. I mean, back then, you know, there was, they clearly did care about, I think at that point we were still in golden age Metroid. Like we were, you know, maybe towards the tail end of it, it was late antiquity or something, but you know they were still loving Metroid. Metroid was doing pretty decently well for for their for the time for their for their systems. You know, so I I'm not too surprised, and I'm happy that they did it. I mean I I mean not that I'm happy either way. Like it's cool that they did it because I appreciate that for like for all the series that Nintendo has, Metroid's really the one that the story like matters really like in like the overarching scheme of things. And things have more or less stayed consistent, and there's continuity between all the games for the most part. So I liked, I mean, at the time at least, there was pretty solid continuity. And I appreciate that they went and kind of put in that work to, or at least (laughs) told people to put in that work to keep things kind of consistent, which is cool. Uh, It was very cool. And while he was saying that, I was kind of thinking to myself, like, man, how did that... uh... How did that drive? Oh, I was about to say, yeah, make it past QA. Yeah, I was like, gonna say, like, you think they that they would have taken that out? Because and like at this point, Dread was canceled not once but twice already. Was it? I mean, I, I think at that point we had known it was canceled at least once, and then by trilogy, I think they were working on the second prototype because we know that that was shown off in 2009, 2010. So I think that I think they might have left it in because they knew that like either there was another chance for Dread or it was. Given, being given its second chance at the time and maybe the first development cycle had kind of already passed but the second one was on the horizon if not there already so maybe they kind of left it in because either the, uh, most likely they just left it in because they didn't care or like it didn't conflict with anything you know because it's like a one-off kind of scan and has nothing to do with anything else so it likely just didn't conflict so they just didn't like they just scanned over or, you know they glossed over it but I also think maybe there's a chance that you know, there was still a chance for Dread at the time, so they kind of left it in because, well, Dread could come out. But I assume that they just passed over it because it didn't conflict with anything. Uh, so I just I, I want to follow up on something about the Metroid Prime trilogy really quick. It was, in fact, Mike Wicken that said 
quote, the biggest issue that Retro Studios has is they no longer have a functional editor tool to work with prime code base, so everything had to be brute force hand-coded. Um, I'm pretty skeptical it will happen. It was straightforward to update Metroid Prime 1 and 2 to motion controls, but converting Metroid Prime 3 to normal controls would be a Herculean effort. So he is, in fact, the one that said that he doesn't well, think Well, he that said her- Herculean effort. He didn't say he didn't think it was going to happen. He just said it would take a lot of work. If that's what he really said, well, I don't... He said, he said it was skeptical that it will happen, but he right. also said that it would probably take a year with a four- to five-person team full-time by itself, which I think we mentioned this before on the show, but, like, I feel like that's totally doable. Well, I right? mean, just like, based on what he said, I really don't think he meant that it's impossible or whatever. He just said it'll take a lot of work, and because it'll take a lot of work, I, you know, I'm not sure if it'll happen. But I don't. I think people took it as, oh, it's not possible. It's not going to happen. This guy said it's not possible. That's not at all. That's not at all what the guy said. Um, so I think that's funny. That's how it was interpreted. But yeah, obviously they could put together a larger team. Uh-huh. And not only that, we are, we already know that the game can be emulated. So I don't see why it would be impossible in any way, shape, or form. And I feel like even even in this podcast interview that we're covering today. He kind of he kind of gave a, a rough formula for how much money your game is gonna make. He said he he said like after expenses selling a million copies of a full priced video game, um, that they his studio would make like a hundred million dollars. Let's say that that four to five person team each make one million dollars a year doing this, which is probably a stretch for a game developer. But let's just say that uh, they do that. Yeah, no, bro, you got like you got a lot of money left to make this a worthwhile endeavor, right? Like, I'm. Just I saying. mean that's a pretty crazy hypothetical, but yeah, I, there's there's no I, it's just I think it's a matter of is it worth like the effort in their case? Or are they gonna just put together another Animal Crossing game? But I think I think they're gonna see the that it's worth the effort. And with Metroid Dread, I think they're already seeing it's worth the effort. I'm sure Metroid Prime Four will have the same reception, and they'll be more willing to kind of go down the route of re-releasing the older games. All right, so on to some fun stuff here that Mike points out next in the interview. Um, I did not know this, Dak, at all. The Luminoth communicate yeah. primarily with their hands and like this kind of sign language that was designed by Carl Mueller, one of the lead coders uh, and programmers for Nintendo and Retro Studios at that time. Um, you know, now that like now that he says it, I yeah, I do remember the Luminoth doing their. They're crazy hand motions, but the way that he like explained, like, no, this is how they communicate. I was just like, man, that's really cool, and like, I never really noticed that, and I and I think that Kiwi Talks didn't really notice it either because he kind of said the same thing. So I thought that that was a great little detail. I would say that's a fact that most people don't know. I don't think I've ever seen that ever mentioned by anybody ever. So I'd be surprised if someone claims to have known that previously, or I mean, maybe it's written down somewhere. I'm I'm just unaware, but I certainly didn't know about it. And obviously, the first time I or you know, the, the first times I was playing this game as a kid, uh, that would completely gloss over my head, right? Like, and if there were subtitles for them talking too, so like my eyes were on reading the text. I wasn't trying to right. <laughs> read their hands, but even even still. And there was that kind of like alien language or whatever, like the, the mumble that yeah. Nintendo does in their games. Yeah, they got the little, the gibberish, the game gibberish that they've got going on there. Mm. Uh, I thought that, yeah, that was very cool. And like, certainly one of those things that now that I know it's there, I'm going to be looking out for it next time I play Echoes. So yeah, very cool. Um, Speaking of Echoes, Mike also thought that the Echo Visor could have been done a little bit better. And so he mentioned specifically that like 
the echo visor wasn't very useful when you have like enemies and in combat and stuff like that. And I, I think for the most part that's true because like really there's not a lot of enemies that you that you engage with the echo visor. Uh, like I can think of Quadraxis and maybe like one or two others, but like really it's more of like an environmental thing. But I still think that it was like super super cool and it just looked so like like it just looks so cool to see the black and then the sonar pulse and stuff like that. I guess I, I can understand where he's saying where it would have been kind of neat to have that a little bit more, you know, in, engaging in combat though. Yeah, of course. I'm sure there's a ton of stuff and he even talks about how there's a ton of stuff they he wishes he could have done or could have done differently back then. And it certainly came off to me as one of those things that like looked and seemed cool. And so they did it and they're like, all right, well, how do we implement it into the game? So it makes sense. And so maybe yeah. that's why it doesn't come off as being like, the most effective but it's, it's one of those cool things that is added to the game and just really like thematically works and i just i don't like obviously the game is about like dark and light stuff but then they kind of incorporate that sound effect or like sound like element to it and which i don't know i think is a, a cool supplemental portion or aspect of the game um so keeping on the echoes train here we also learned that uh it was kind of a toss-up between the the central gimmick of the game either being the light and dark world or future and past which uh, which is kind of neat but i'm glad that they went with the the light and dark world because you know even though zelda has like light and dark world in many of its games the the future and past thing just feels like kind of a zelda thing to me and and i don't know i mean it's not obviously more series than zelda use that trope but you know, as as a Nintendo gamer, I feel like, all right, well, Zelda does the future and past thing. So, like, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm glad that Echoes did the light and dark world. I'll just say that. You know, I've I've thought originally that Metroid t- should stay away from time travel because usually time travel just, it just complicates things story-wise, just makes things messy. But I think I've kind of changed my stance on this. I wouldn't be entirely against it for a Metroid game or story or multiple games incorporating some kind of time travel I, it just, I'm very wary about it because, again, it can be something that immediately doesn't work or is confusing. But there's a lot of cool stuff you could do with time travel. And it's sci fi, so I think it, and it's like very much, you know, fa- like fantasy um, involved sci fi. So I think it could work. I wouldn't be against it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not against the idea of time travel in Metroid. Um... On the on the basis that it's time travel, I was just like, uh, that that just feels like kind of a Zelda gimmick to me, you know. I, I mean, I guess, but Zelda didn't invi- in, invent <laughs> past and future uh, stuff. Well, of course not. <laughs> yeah, of course not. I just like when I I when I think of like the Nintendo series that deal in time travel, I think of Zelda. I mean, I mean, it's also ironic because Zelda also deals in dark and light worlds like quite extensively. So um, yeah, why is it okay for Echoes to do dark and light but not do? future and past don't don't make me don't make me explain myself because you're biased for zelda show, right? bro <laughs> yeah. i think it would be cool well if, i and you know what i would be i'd be fine with that i'd be fine to see time travel in metroid now but um the yeah, space pirates go back in, into the past to try to get ridley back because they can't <laughs> revive him anymore so they they try to go back into the past and get a Ridley, and they bring back all the Ridleys, and it's like all the Ridleys fight Samus all at once from all the different games, and it's like the crossover universe, and they just go into the multi Metroid Imagine, multiverse, bro. Big three D NES Ridley. That'd be sick. I'm down for that. That would Screw own. It. 
NES Ridley is like the worst boss in the series, man. Oh Metroid Multiverse. Is he, he is. <laughs> he is not the Ridley we know him as. All right, well let's let's talk about Ridley actually. So one of the other things that we learned, um, and I, this also made the rounds right after, but the Ridley fight in Metroid Prime Three, the the meta Ridley fight where you are falling down the shaft at the beginning of the game. We both really liked that fight. I remember both of us ranked it pretty high on our Ridley ranking fight. So that was inspired by two distinct things. First was the Gandalf and Balrog fight from uh, Lord of the Rings, the two towers, the one that kicks off the movie. And it was pretty clear. Like Mike was a, was a big Lord of the Rings fan. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan as well. Those are like the greatest movies ever made. I'm just going to say that. And that, that fight is so sick. And, And I think we talked about it before how that like, definitely had those vibes in that fight but he also mentioned that it was kind of based on a um a prototype or maybe not a prototype even but just an idea that he had for a boss fight in metro prime one where you would kind of be fighting ridley through a ca- uh, canyon and you'd be on top of your ship and dude that would have been pretty cool yeah there's like a bit of concept art or artwork that's been around the internet forever i think we might have even talked about it on like the cut content episode for metroid prime of like ridley flying yeah. at the at the screen or, you know, towards the camera, towards you in like a canyon kind of area. And apparently that's tied to that idea where you're flying through like Samus is, you know, Samus's ship is flying through this canyon. There's all these like kind of bridges and like cross structures going from one side to the other. And Samus is supposed to be like on top of her ship while it's flying and like shooting at Ridley while it's flying by. And you kind of shoot down stuff to hit him. I'm like, damn, I when he described that, I was like, oh, I wish you didn't do that because <laughs> that sounds so awesome and it doesn't exist. And we kind of get, you know, the instead of the horizontal version, we get the vertical version of that in Metroid Prime 3, which is still cool, but it doesn't have it doesn't have the same feel because the Metroid Prime 3 fight, they're just falling in one place and doesn't have that same bigger scale fight. I think like like a canyon would. It's still pretty like a, a big and, and cool fight though, but what he described just sounded obviously how he described it, I was like, damn, that would have been sick if they could have pulled that off in on the GameCube oh, back dude. then. But now I'm thinking I'm like, oh please someone at Retro like be working on this for you, Metro you know Prime what that makes 4. Me think of? <laughs> please. You know all those rumors that Retro was working on like Star Fox Grand Prix? I was like, dude, if you don't put a bonus level in there with Samus's ship and like you're you're gunning down instead of Andros, you're fighting Ridley. Like, oh my God, that that prince money. I I, I God, definitely that'd be, that'd be think so it'd good. be cool to have. I mean, I've always vouched for and wanted more ship incorporation into the Metroid Prime games, and I think a boss battle like that would be really sick. Or just in general, like Samus fighting on the outside of her ship on top of it, and of course, you know, a Ridley fight while you're flying really fast sounds absolutely epic. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I really love Metroid Prime 3 in particular for the way it incorporates uh, a little bit more of Samus' ship than we've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's uh, let's keep going here. Uh, Mike also said one of the other things we learned, there was obviously huge crunch for Metroid Prime 1, but no crunch at all for Metroid Prime 2 and 3. That's a big thing in the video game world right now, and uh, a lot of that investigative reporting by Jason Schreier and like how companies treat their employees... Um, you know, it's a hot topic, so it was good to hear that, uh, you know, that at least the process for Prime 2 and 3 was smooth, and of course we all know the crazy story about Retro Studios in Metroid Prime 1. If you do not go and listen to our Unbelievable History of Retro Studios episode, it really is unbelievable, but um, yeah, he did he did touch on that, and he spent a little bit more time that we won't get into just talking about 
his leadership qualities and, and what he thinks makes a good studio and stuff like that. So that was also just kind of interesting listening. Yeah. He says that I think at one point did like a 48 hour day, like without sleeping, working on Metroid Prime. And and he does admit that like Metroid Prime 2 and 3, they had a little bit of crunch, but he thought, it, you know, he said it was like, yeah, it was like a natural, like small amount of crunch that wasn't anything crazy compared to what he did in Metroid Prime 1, which is obviously great to hear that <laughs> there was such an improvement. But also, it's just, it's wild that they're able to get such a great, you know, game done with the crazy yeah. development it had. And then they were able to follow it up with games that were, you know, around, if not just as good, if not better, and, and also improve the, like, development environment instead of it kind of going the other direction. And certainly that also right, came so. from, uh, that also, sorry, but it also came from changes in management as well, of course. So, that, <laughs> necessary oh, yeah, changes. They... <laughs> He uh he didn't outright say, but he, uh, God, I can't remember the the founder's name now of Retro, but he basically alluded to like everyone was about to walk out before this guy essentially got booted out of his own company by Nintendo, and his company was bought out, and how they they turned it around. Um, I can't I can't recommend that history of Retro Studios episode enough. It is literally unbelievable to to listen to where this studio began and its uh, its first couple of years. So go check that out. Um. This was, I think, the most interesting part, the interesting, most interesting thing that we learned in this whole interview to okay. me, and this is going to be very pertinent to us because we have a big episode coming up that is, uh, Doom is going to be joining us, we're going to be talking about multiplayer in the Metroid series, but, so Mike actually said that um, they spent, what did he say, like, basically Metroid Prime 2 had two years of development, um, maybe not even, and six months of that was was them developing a multiplayer Metroid game because Nintendo thought that because Metroid was first person, a first person shooter, um, they should have multiplayer. And so he said that the first six months was, was basically them working on this game. And then Metroid prime came out and then the reception was so fantastic that Nintendo was like, no, 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 just do that again. And, uh, it, that was just so fascinating to me to think or just to like kind of get in that headspace. Cause like, especially back then when like, you know, Goldeneye and perfect dark and time splitters and halo are, are the, the huge FPS that have kind of been paving the way, like uh, for consoles, like of course it seemed natural that, that a first person shooter should have multiplayer. Um, and it also kind of explains why, why the, the multiplayer for Metroid prime two, what felt so tacked on. And that's because it literally was, it didn't have any connection to the game. It was basically the, the prototype multiplayer that they were working on. And they were like, okay, well, we got it. Like, here we go. Nintendo had been suggesting that maybe they release Metroid Prime 1.5 with multiplayer. Um, I just, I thought that this whole thing was just like super, super interesting. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it was really cool how they go in, uh, how it goes into, you know, the games originally start out. It's like its own original IP as an FPS. And then, yeah, Nintendo like saw it. was like, hey, just make a Metroid. And that was Metroid Prime. Yeah, my understanding was after doing the Metroid Prime development, they kind of cooled down afterward by working on this multiplayer uh, prototype. But it wasn't necessarily tied to Metroid Prime either. They were also working on, you know, the Metroid Prime 1.5. And then when they kind of finished that up, like, oh, we'll just we'll, we'll put it in to Metroid Prime 2. And then they kind of went from there. But yeah, it is interesting how a lot of people assume like, oh, they just kind of put the multiplayer together at the end and tacked it on. But really, it wasn't. It wasn't really tacked on. It was the first thing that that was worked on, if anything, and the rest of the game was was tacked on, kind of technically. Um, 
technically technically you're so, not wrong but it, that is cool and and i think they were just kind of looking to like hey we've been working on the single player multiplayer like let's let's cool down and and unwind by playing some multiplayer like they just kind of worked on this multiplayer suite and then they played around i'm sure and then for a lot of that six months you know and just had a good time like screwing around this multiplayer game they're working on and like oh well you know we got to work this into metroid prime 2 and we got what we got and i'm i mean i'm certain you know, it's guaranteed that Metroid Prime 4 is going to have multiplayer. And I, I like to kind of see how its roots, how it's kind of evolved. But the Metroid Prime multiplayer outlets have been very few. And, well, not very few and far between, but they're very disconnected. And it's interesting to kind of see how this one panned out. Because obviously Metroid Prime Hunters is the, the game that's remembered as being the real Metroid multiplayer experience. Metroid Prime 2 Echoes multiplayer was just a you know, nice little fun side thing that you played here and there, but wasn't a real actual thing you'd you'd play for a long period of time. It was just a distraction or something you'd check out maybe once or twice. Okay, I have, I have two questions for you here, Dak, and I'm going to ask you the first question because I'm just seeing this on Twitter. But were you aware that Nintendo Switch now supports Bluetooth? Uh, I don't know. Does it? Does it? I, I think it literally is a thing like today because I'm just seeing this now. Oh yeah, they just um, tweeted our buddy it, yeah. Joey Ferris just paired his uh, his Xbox headphones on his Switch. That's that's wild. Wow, that is wild. <laughs> um, anyways, cool. My question to you, the, the the first one before I got distracted with that. What what happens if Metroid Prime Four comes out? What happens if it comes out? I was like, what happens if it comes out? I don't know. What happens if it actually comes out ever? Um, by the way, I just thought it was really funny. You think it's such a big deal that Bluetooth is available on the Switch? Like, oh my god. Nintendo figured it, it, out this new technology like... called Bluetooth. <laughs> What's next? No, it's just that it came out of nowhere. It's. Uh, I mean, it, it came out of nowhere because Nintendo knows they're just trying to like quickly get it out there so people like hopefully in a week forget about it because the last time they announced a big feature for their system it was the ethernet port and like oh my god i remember when the playstation 2 had that 20 years ago maybe i'm wrong i i just googled switch bluetooth and i and i'm seeing like a couple month old articles here but i just saw i saw like three tweets in a row about this uh it uh, is cool though because we'll be able to have uh, bluetooth speakers for smash events because usually monitors don't have built-in speakers, so that's actually uh, pretty convenient. So I'm happy about that. Um, okay, yeah. So your question was, oh, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm gonna oh. cut you off. Uh, I'm so sorry. The latest Nintendo oh. Switch update is now available, including the ability to pair Bluetooth devices for audio output. Wow. So you go there you go okay, oh my this, god wow breaking news on the Omega Metroid podcast. Nintendo's right really. They're blazing new frontiers. They're breaking new ground with this kind of stuff. Yes, crazy. We're, we're entering the the next century. Thank God. Right thank God. There's Bluetooth technology available before the release of Metroid Prime or Metroid Dread. Like, oh, thank God. If I need my Bluetooth headphones so I can play Metroid Dread on my Switch. So, um, yeah. All right. What what happens, Dad? What happens if Metroid Prime Four comes out and doesn't have multiplayer? I mean, it is going to come out with multiplayer, but uh, so I don't have to worry about that. But if it doesn't, I mean, then it doesn't. And then I'll play Metroid Prime 4 and I'll enjoy it. And that'll be that. You know, it's not really a big deal. Okay. Like, so what? Like, look, at the end of the day, I'm just happy or hoping for a fun multiplayer experience. And not really hoping because I, I know for a fact that it's going to have multiplayer. And uh, that's, I'm looking for a fun multiplayer experience on the Switch. 
I know it's going to be on the Switch with Switch Online, and it's going to be a Nintendo game, so it's, you know, it's whatever. But if it doesn't have multiplayer, it'll be a missed opportunity. It sucks for them. It'll suck to not have multiplayer in a Metroid Prime game, but I'll, you know, I'll get over it because there are many more games that can occupy my interest these days. I just think it'll be a missed opportunity. Fair enough. All right. Um, one more thing that we learned, actually two more things. I'm going to add a bonus one in there. Um, the first undeniable proof deck, undeniable proof that Metroid Prime is not a first. No, person no, I knew you were going to say that. No, adventure. no, that's not what he said. That's literally, <laughs> dude, I, I cannot wait for you to explain undeniable yourself. I can't proof. wait for you to explain. The debate your, is no, over. No, it's not. I can't wait for you to explain yourself and you're going to go on because it, what he says does not, is not, is not that, but go on. Uh, you knew you knew I was going to bring that up. I knew you're going to bring it up because I, the I second to. he said something about <laughs> oh shooting is not a pillar of the game, um, I I thought of, I thought of you. I was like oh Andy blah blah, blah because that. which is funny because <laughs> the very next sentence is moving is not a pillar of the game. Like oh I guess it's not a first person adventure either. How can you adventure if it's, you can't? It's not a first person mover. It's a first. It's a first dude. It, it, it's a, dude. It's a first. Like look, I have never said. Like, obviously, if the developer says a pillar of the game is exploration, but, like, what he says is very clear that shooting is integral to the game because it, as a result of that, allows you to explore, just like moving and all of that kind of stuff does. does. So, I mean, it's a first-person shooter, bro. He didn't say it isn't, and from what I heard, it is. And you can maul it all you want, baby, but... Uh, it's an FPS because you can't get through that game unless you know how to glitch, and even then you can't get through it without shooting, so... I I think he said first person adventure. He didn't. If he are, no, no, he, he didn't. I'm, I'm messing. He, he didn't, didn't say that. that. I, actually, I don't have any. I don't have anything to bring up. I, I thought that was that funny though. But time. I mean, that's a good way to look at it because, <laughs> like, you know, he says like it's important in terms of keeping the focus in a game's development on having those pillars. Like, what is this game about? Like the three main, two or three or four main things this game about, right? So like obviously like exploration right. is one for Metroid Prime. So like Metroid Prime isn't about you know, shooting or moving and jumping, it's about exploring and shooting and moving and jumping are the tools that you use to allow you to explore. And if you have the, and that, that was his literal quote was shooting support. Exactly. So, and, and which I thought was, which I thought was a great quote. Yeah. Actually, I just, I and wanted to, correct, to stick it to you. Because, well, I mean, you're not sticking it to me. You're proving well, my it point is because you, you play doom. <laughs> you proved my point. <laughs> you, like I, you play doom and then you play, um, or doom eternal. And like, I would say for that game, kind of exploration more so supports the shooting. Like, you have to explore to get to your next kind of shootout with a bunch of enemies or something like that. So, you, you can see the difference, but, um, yeah, I, I just... I mean, I, I could, I could you I know, thought, thought put it another way because you're looking at Metroid Prime and you can't really explore a room that's full of enemies until you shoot them and clear the room so they stop bothering you. You can actually explore it. So... You know, as far as I'm concerned, what he's, I mean, from what I play and what I know and from what he said, like, and not that I really care if you think it's a first person adventure, like, who, who cares? Um, but at the end of the day, like, it's very obvious that, like, that kind of stuff is integral to the experience. It's not just you're moving and walk. It's not a walking simulator, you know? So, um it's it's not a first person mover. It's that's not a, for sure. I mean, but but it moving, moving but it, is not. But it integral. is though. It, it it is a first person mover. But like it's many. But like that's not something we would call it. But technically, that's what it is. You're in first person. You're moving it around. But that's not a genre because that's so non-specific <laughs> and vague. We should create the first person. Well, it's a walking genre. simulators. Right, you know. Let's let's first person move on from this discussion. Um, so that that was all that um, that I really got about uh, his his kind of takes on Metroid. But he said something 
that I actually I, I wanted to to bring up because I, I actually disagree with what he said. Um, he's talked about good and to give co- proper context here, he was talking about how good game design is the most important critical thing because you can have the best game design or the best graphics, the the smoothest running game, the best story in the world. And it won't matter if your game plays like garbage. And I think for the most part that this is true, of course. But he also said, and I quote, uh, story will never sell video games. And I actually, I disagree with him on that for, for like the most part. Because I think that there are certainly certain genres of video games that like you buy it for the story, like visual novels, um, like Games, I think, like Life is Strange or like Detroit Become Human or even like the Ace Attorney series, like you do buy those games for for the stories. And like, yes, there's some gameplay and like, you know, I wouldn't say it's anything in depth, but the gameplay really just supports the story. And the story is like the main focus. And you you could even go so far as to say like a story like The Last of Us, which which is a which is a really fun video game. But like. I wouldn't say the gameplay is anything out of this world. It's it's standard fare, but like the performances, the story um, are so fantastic that that to me is the selling point. So I, I kind of disagreed with him on that. I'm curious as to what you think. You know, and, and again, I'm not uh, as experienced as this guy or knowledgeable or involved in game development, but I did get the feeling like based on his perspectives on like how possible Metroid Prime Trilogy is and, and like that comment, like maybe his perspective is a bit outdated these days. But again, I just, you know, that's uh, an outsider looking in and obviously not trying to make any kind of judgment call. But yeah, I, I agree for the most part because a lot of the time a really good story gives meaning to the gameplay and makes you enjoy it more and make you, makes you want to play a game more. And you mentioned Last, Last of Us. I think that's 100% one of those games and that was one I was going to mention. And then, yeah, you have games that are just strictly 100% story-based that are, you know, you're just really clicking around or you're picking options and more or less you're watching a story unfold. Like, they're essentially interactive movies. And it kind of blurs the line of what's a game and what's not. So, I, yeah, I think a story 100% sells because... It's easy to boil down story to what happens in the game or the campaign. But story is more than that. Like, that's the plot. Like, story is the world, the characters that make up that world, and everything that happens in it. So, when you when you have a game like God of War, for example, like, they just recently uh, announced the new God of War game that's coming out for PlayStation 5. And, you know, right. God of War game, the, the last one, and, and overall, the God of War games are praise for its their gameplay right but they're not just praise for their gameplay when you see the god of war characters right you when you see kratos and his son you're not just hyped for controlling him you're also hyped for the character and you're excited to see them again and play as them again and go through their story and continue it so it's it's a reason why we're excited to see samus back right we're not just playing metroid for the metroid gameplay i as far i mean maybe i'm just as far as i'm concerned i also play metroid for for samus and like the world and the setting and all that and it's all a complete package and that's why I never kind of try to knock like story, even graphics wise, because it all comes together to make the game. Like you can't, those things don't exist in a vacuum. You can't just like a game isn't just, oh, it's just gameplay or just this, just that. Those all things work together and they're all interconnected. So yeah, I don't agree that story doesn't sell a game. A lot of the time it does, or at the very least gives the selling point of the game, the gameplay, some more meaning to it and indirectly gives it more significance. So uh, maybe that just might be an outdated yeah. perspective, but uh who knows my, my kind of philosophy is like i actually like i agree with him in a sense of like if, if a game is like wretched to play like i i don't want to play it no matter how good the story right. is 
if if a game is is average or even below average to play, but has like a really engaging story, I'll play it. And likewise, if there's like a a game that I'm playing with um, an above, it's it's above average in terms of gameplay. Like it's fairly fun, but the story doesn't capture me. Then sometimes I I just kind of fall off. And actually, I'm playing uh, an inspired by Metroid game right now. That's like it's pretty fun. It, you know, it's got all like the Metroidvania kind of qualities I like, but the story is just a little bit goofy, and I'm just like, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'll get to it later. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Um, so yeah, I, I just heard that I didn't really agree with it, but I wanted to see where you were at it yeah. uh, with that. And I'd love to hear where, where our listeners are at with it as well. Um, is there anything that I did not bring up that you noticed that Mike said that you want to, that you want to chat about, chat about? Uh, well, I mean, I thought his history of, I mean, he was originally, I think like a classical painter or artist, or like a classically trained artist, which I thought was really interesting. And then he became a you know, a 3D modeler at this indie company and they he eventually became like their lead designer because he was doing all the art for the developer. So he was he's a very uh you know take initiative kind of guy and, and it's no wonder that he's worked on some awesome games, which I thought was really cool. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting was he talked about the uh Quadraxis boss fight for a bit in Metroid Prime 2 and he said how like critical it was for the camera to work for that boss fight, especially when you're moving around obviously in morph ball form because of all the stuff that's happening in that fight and making like the sound visor work. So he remembers that as being one of his favorite uh, boss fights as well. And it's <laughs> no surprise. I think that's consensus. One of the best ones in the series, but yeah, I thought that kind of stuff was interesting seeing where people, you know, obviously his thoughts on the Quadraxis stuff, but I think just kind of his background slightly on, on how he got into game development. And I remember, you know, Kiwi was like, well, how'd you, how'd you learn? He was like, I just did it. You know, they needed, they needed the work to get done. And I was like, well, <laughs> I guess I got to learn and, and get it done. Otherwise, this game's not going to ship. And I don't think it even ended up shipping. But, like, he, that's how he kind of approached it. He's like, well, it has to get done, so I'm going to learn how to do it. Yeah. I, I, just a really interesting guy. He was a great, um, like, he was a great interview. Like, he was he was engaging. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, it was, it was easy to understand some of the stuff that he was saying. There was, there was one point, like, at the very beginning where he was kind of talking about the developmental systems of, of Metroid Prime and, and, you know, for, for an average schmo like me, I was like, okay, well, like I'm following along and, and maybe some of it's over my head, but it was still very easy to relate to what he was saying. So uh, just one more time, Kiwi Talks conducted this interview. He's on Spotify. He's on YouTube. Uh, it's a super, super interesting interview. So go and uh, go and give that a listen. Give it a download. Uh, you will not regret the hour of your life that you spend listening to it. Also, you can check him out over on Twitter. Uh, it's Kiwi Talks, K-I-W-I. Uh, T A L K Z, so T- Kiwi Togs. So there you go. Um, all right. Well, that uh, that is it. That is all. We are hoping to deliver a a star studded multiplayer episode for you guys next week with our buddy Doom, and then after that, by God, we are short. We are one week away from Metroid Dread. After that, so lots of stuff to talk about here. Uh, Dak, this is this is a good time. I had a fun recording today. Yeah, I mean it was a good uh, podcast to listen to, and I'm always down to talk about Metroid Prime stuff. So it was uh, it was a fun chat. Well, uh, we are going to have a fun chat next week as well. So make sure that you are tuning in for that. Um, until then, everybody, we want to encourage you to head on over to Spotify, iTunes, Google Pods, Apple Pods, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. 
you know the drill. Go like and subscribe. Recommend us to that Metroid fan in your life. And check us out over on Twitter, uh, at Omega Metroid Pod, at Spateri316, and at DakCity underscore. Uh, until next week, everybody, we will see you then.